Welcome to the Zeke Sky Podcast. When I was in college doing my degree in philosophy at the University of Maryland, there was a popular game we played that I'm remembering now, and I'm sure folks in other places have played it too, but it had a very thought-provoking title of this game. It was Fuck, Marry, or Kill. That was the name of the game, and you played this game by giving people a list of three or more people and asking them which they would do what to. And I remember playing this game maybe my sophomore year and thinking it was nonsensical and stupid. But my junior year, I took an evolutionary psychology class. And after taking that class, I realized that people who played this game weren't just involved in some infantile word game to pass the time between lectures. They were actually providing data points in a broader discussion of human nature. And the study of evolutionary psychology is an extremely fascinating realm of human self-inspection. It's the use of basic evolutionary biology to determine the origins and key features of our emotions, our desires, and our instincts that helped our ancestors survive and reproduce. It provides us with a powerful scientific narrative that supports and really reinforces a lot of the introspective philosophy around human nature that's gone on for thousands of years in the absence of a formalized theory of evolution. And it's a lens that provides, in my opinion, crucial lessons for human thriving. I want to start here first by adjusting people's expectations of what this field is, because I use the term science, and I want to talk about what we can expect from this and how to understand the crop harvested from it. And I want to go back to some first principles here for a moment, so bear with me, um, just so that we might tether our search to a realistic and honest view of the lens we are choosing to use. So all sciences are not created equal. They're not like humans. When we talk about science, in quotes, what we're talking about is the broad effort to use human introspection and observation to know the nature of reality and the fruits of this search have varying levels of potency and durability. Some would say that there are hard sciences and soft sciences. A hard science is a science that has extremely high levels of like experimental replicability, easy observation, and theories that often confirm other things that may be on a higher level of certainty in our own experience. For example, the idea that a force compels an object in the air to fall to the earth is a product of a hard scientific experience. It's easy to observe gravity, it confirms what we feel when we drop a rock on our foot, and we can re replicate it basically a hundred times out of a hundred, a thousand times out of a thousand. The only doubt I can imagine to this fact is that the earth itself moves towards any object placed in the air, but we know that gravitational pull is directly proportional to mass, so that's not what's going on. So it confirms much of what we can, you know, you actually see and know about the world. Physics is in many ways the hardest of the sciences we can think of since it tends to have the highest level of replicability. And you know that too, because when there's a serious replication crisis in physics, everybody finds out and it's a huge scandal. Now, not all sciences are hard, however. Soft sciences lay very far down the chain. They require a lot of extrapolation from one science to the next. You might think of physics as being at the top and maybe something like chemistry being right beneath it, 
right? Because a lot of the the things that we need to understand things in chemistry use use basic physical principles. Um, now, all the way at the bottom of the chain, once you go through, you know, biology and psychology, you get to stuff like political science and social science. Um, without a complete theory of human minds, though, the sciences that incorporate human decision making lie at the bottom of the chain, and they require significant human guessing to fill in the voids. And evolutionary psychology is probably somewhere in the middle, and solving in the a lot of the issues in evolutionary psychology would go far in explaining things down the chain. So, you know, if, if some of the, the problems in evolutionary psychology were really fixed, and if we really had concrete results from evolutionary psychology, a lot of things that were downstream around social science and political science might have a lot to benefit from it. And as a preface to this podcast, I've designed a small tool for understanding how seriously we should take evolutionary psychology, and, and really all sciences, on a scale of 1 to 10. 10 is maybe our physics, and 1 being something like social science, not, not very reliable, not very orderly at all. And I have three simple criteria, each which shall be rated 1 to 10 for generating our lens and how we should treat evolutionary psychology. Lens 1 is replicability. Can you replicate the experimental measures very well um, from experiment to experiment and get the same results? And evolutionary psychology struggles with experimental replication because it's been extremely ambitious with both is its experimental design and its end goals, so evolutionary psychology here gets a 5 out of 10. Lens 2 is intuitiveness. The theories coming from evolutionary psychology, in my opinion, strongly describe human experiences. I feel very connected to the body of work and the body of scientific descriptions that talk about this stuff. I give it an 8 there. Lens 3 is measurement blur. Measurement blur is my way of identifying that sort of the more tools used to observe a phenomena, the less accurate the final picture is of that phenomena, the, the lower the resolution is of that pic, of that phenomena. Here we have a high score as only behavior is observed for much of evolutionary psychology. I'll give it an eight there. So evolutionary psychology on my small scale, which is, you know, you can make better scales. All kinds of people have done this. You can read Karl Popper and the philosophy of science. This is just a small way of addressing this. I'm going to give it a 7 on my scale, a 7 out of 10. It's a science we should take seriously, but should also recognize has crucial blind spots. We proceed. Let's start by talking about Charles Darwin. He's the author of On the Origin of the Species, which is probably one of the most important works of science maybe ever, in which he basically says, among other things, that all creatures on Earth have a common ancestor, and that the further you go back, the more lines and families of creatures you will see have one in common. It's the same idea as 9, 12, 15, and 18 having a common denominator. The number 3 is common to all of them. And all non-fractional numbers have 1 in common, of course, which is basically the idea in evolution that it all goes back to 1. And the book suggests that some organisms had traits that would allow them to survive long enough to re you know, reproduce. And those traits would be magnified over time. So if you have a trait that exists in a creature, and that creature manages to get its DNA and its genetics into the next generation, that gene is magnified. And if you had, you know, 100 out of, let's say you have 200 creatures, and 100 of them have a certain trait, um, maybe those 100 are able to run faster than 10 miles an hour. Um, you would expect in the next generation, if that is selected for, if that allows organisms to survive, that that is going to be magnified in the next generation. 
And this is sort of the theory of natural selection. But there was a missing part of the puzzle. It isn't just organisms with adaptive traits who reproduce. Another lens to view the continuity of the gene pool is through what's known as sex selection, which basically says that it's human sex behavior and mate selection that determines what genes are amplified across time, or it's the other part of what genes are amplified across time. The struggle plays out in animals usually as the struggle for males um, competing against each other to have access to females. I think this insight alone here is extraordinarily powerful. It means that at least half the secrets to the surviving gene pool lie somewhere in the unconscious female mind, in the way that female creatures select male partners. It's a very, very powerful thing to realize. It almost sort of sounds like that behind every great man is a great woman thing. I think that this lesson is true. I think that if you look at high-level phenomena in biology and you think about what's being sculpted in the populations of organisms, especially in humans, you really are looking at the female selection bias, which leads us to a key difference in understanding um, basically the dynamic here, which is understanding the difference between intersexual competition, right, and intrasexual competition. Now, this basically is a way of describing two dynamics that play out in the course of human mating. And intersexual selection basically happens when one sex chooses which members of the other sex to mate with, right? So that's your girlfriend choosing you, or your wife, she chose you. Um, and intersexual selection occurs when members of the same sex compete for mates. So you could think about intrasexual competition as being the kind of thing that powers people to take care of themselves, look good, earn a stable income, harness talents, anything that people do that they think at least will attract a partner. That would be intrasexual competition because um, basically what you're doing is you're trying to stand out from the rest of the people doing the thing, even if subconsciously you don't recognize it that way. Um, subconsciously, you're just enacting and acting out your own behaviors, but this is just something that we've learned from observing animals for a very long time. We're strongly bound to the social hierarchy and the cultural gravity that compels us to seek out partners that are good for us, good for us psychologically, good for us physically, good for us mentally. And as, as we're going to see, that is a different thing for males than it is for females. And this is where we get to concepts like fitness and evolutionary success. I'm not going to go too far down the rabbit hole here, but we should understand something about fitness, not fitness and how strong, physically strong we are, although that might be part of what we're looking at here when we're looking at the fitness of a creature. But fitness is basically just the numerical representation of an individual's reproductive successes. It's equal to the basically the average contribution to the gene pool um, of the following generation. Um, and it's either defined with respect to a genotype or a phenotype in a given environment, right? And the difference between a genotype and a phenotype is pretty important. We'll talk about it really quickly. But the genotype of an organism is its complete set of genetic material, right? It's just the everything that's carried from the alleles or the variants into a particular gene or a location. And that is important for understanding kind of one element here. 
But there's another element here, which is obviously the phenotype. And the phenotype is just the observable characteristics or traits of the organism, right? So we have the genetic material on one hand, and we have the manifest behaviors on the other hand, which make up the phenotype. Now, a phenotype could be just, the, or it is, the observable manifestation of a genotype. So a genotype, that, that information within the gene is manifested by a certain series of behaviors. And when we go looking for genes that are predictive towards certain behaviors, that's essentially what we're looking at. We're trying to go backwards, look at the behavior, and say, is there a genetic marker for this? All right, well, with some of the warnings in place, I am going to go ahead and start talking about some of the basics here and how we understand the dynamics Let's talk first about maybe the origin of the observations around human sex behavior. And not just human sex behavior, but animal sex behavior. And let's think pretty hard about what the differences are that set us humans apart from a lot of animals in the animal kingdom, because that's the important distinction there. Now, there is something we might call the law of battle that applies in the animal kingdom. And we actually, to be frank, we understand this law of battle kind of inherently in our cultural system, I would say. But the law of battle in the animal world is that there are certain sets of species, um, a number of them actually, in which, I think bulls are one of them, but in which the intrasexual competition, right, that's the, the competition between males and males or females and females, plays out in a literal physical battle a literal physical battle, and the winner is presumed to take the female. Now, just some caveats here. Darwin himself mentions that this is not always how it works out. He says in a, you know, in, in just kind of a reprieve, he basically says that, quote, the female could escape in most cases if wooed by a male that did not please or excite her. And when pursued, as so incessantly occurs, by several males, she would often have the opportunity, whilst they were fighting together, of escaping with, or at least temporarily pairing with, some one male. End quote. Now, this is kind of pointing out the fact that the treatment of sexual selection is not a complete theory without a treatment of what's known as mate choice. Mate choice would be basically the conscious deciding of a creature to mate with a person, that it goes beyond anything that happens in intrasexual competition. And this is where the more interesting and more colorful realms of evolutionary psychology exist and are seemingly building experimental models to understand why these things happen the way they do and why people are attracted to the people they're attracted to. And this is a place where I have to say evolutionary psychology really does shine in terms of experimental design. There's one that's close to my heart that I think some people listening to this podcast will enjoy. But, you know, two independent studies actually found that women find men more attractive if they are literally just holding a guitar. Think about that for a second. Not playing it, holding a guitar. Um, one of the studies was conducted, I'm pretty sure, in France. And it was a young man kind of asking strangers for a date. Remember, this is an experiment. This guy is part of this experiment, and he's asking strangers for a date. And they outline the results um, in the Psychology of Music, which is a publication. And in the second study, they used, I think, a Facebook request or something to gouge guitar-holding attractiveness in profile pictures. 
Um, their results have been detailed a lot in podcasts and stuff like that, but th there was actually an article published on it called Letters on Evolutionary Behavioral Science. And in the first study, the one in, in France, um, the young, good-looking male volunteer was asked to approach about 300 young women on the street, tell them he thought they were pretty, and ask for their number. And about 100 of the encounters, he carried a guitar, and 100 times he carried a gym bag, and the other 100 times he had nothing at all. In looking at the results, the researchers saw that women gave their number to the young man 31% of the time when he was holding a guitar, but only 14% of the time when he was carrying nothing. When he was holding a gym bag, he got a number just 9% of the time. Okay, so that is fairly demonstrative of a, a very interesting factor that got a lot of people thinking in the evolutionary psychology community and certainly in the musical community. Um, there was certainly some pretense, I think, in evolutionary psychology that the competence that is demonstrated by musical ability was what was really attractive to women. And I don't think there's a way of really combating that thesis. I think that that's probably also on solid ground. I think this is giving some secondary information here, which is that probably, this would be my guess, that there is some sort of vector by which shared interests are sexually attractive to probably both sexes. Interestingly, there I see, I perceive a certain tribalism as being responded to, um, a certain shared story and a certain shared ethos that is reflected in attraction that goes that way. If someone wears something that you like, or if someone expresses beliefs that are similar to yours, it seems like that's what's kind of going on in tangent there. But just while we're at that part of the conversation, let's also just think about what the other idea was. And the, the other idea isn't necessarily wrong. It isn't, it isn't, um, it isn't mutually exclusive that that tribalism would come at the cost of a theory about guitar competence, right? Because we could imagine a situation in which subconsciously or unconsciously people walking around with guitars appear to be guitarists, and that appears to signal some baseline level of competency, which would be attractive. Um, if we wanted to think about guitar through the competency lens, um, I would suggest looking at the people who play guitar and when they started developing the skills, and it's interesting, when you see um, younger men learning guitar for the first time, it seems to rather well coincide with just, a, you know, right around post-puberty, right, when they're becoming more sexually involved. So it would seem reasonable to suspect that at least uh, on the instinctive level, the development of musical competence is potentially a unconscious artifact of human or male or female intrasexual competition is one way of putting that. Which brings us to the most fiery part of the debate, or one of the most fiery parts of the debate, and the thing that gets the lion's share of the screen time, especially from self-help types and, um, you know, those fabulous attractor sorts. We're trying to give you the quick sauce on how to become more attractive to the opposite sex. To be fair to a lot of the newer sort of manosphere type noises that are made on the internet, there is scientism going on in a lot of these communities, but it doesn't start from first principles. And it's important to understand the first principles and to really think about this stuff broadly so that you have the best possible base for exploring what you think 
are the characteristics that would make you personally attractive to other people. That's one thing. The other thing is how does this thing function out in the environment and maybe in other primates, but let's just kind of, let's meander over to this for a second. Mate selection is basically the process that is influenced by biology and environment that uh, is the way by which individuals look for long or short-term mates um, and depending on your hormones, your phase of life, and your self-perception, it could be a variety of people. In general, and this is in general, I want to just really, really emphasize, in general, there's going to be lots of people who don't fit these molds. But in general, in humans, women seem to prefer long-term relationships, but still engage in short-term mating. We know that. Although most men end up in long-term relationships, most men seem to prefer short-term mating. So it's that kind of decision that is influenced um, by sex ratios of available mates versus intrasexual competitors. That's, that's one thing that powers that. And strategies become more desirable primarily as a function of the number of available mates responding to a, a single given strategy. And that signal of um, male or female behavior is directly related to the corresponding acceptance rate, you could say, of the opposite sex. Now, we've seen studies uh, recently, especially, that have shown that there are actually fewer differences between men and women. And this is part of the place where we have to just understand evolutionary psychology just can't see deep enough yet because the self-report methods um, are notoriously rife with either purposefully bad self-reporting or some kind of unconscious bias. So let me tell you what I mean here. So the experimental design in evolutionary psychology is different than obviously what we would do in a chemistry lab or when we're studying physics in a number of ways. One of the prime ways that we decide and we observe about, you know, observe the things that are important to know about evolutionary psychology is through reporting, through asking people their feelings, why they did X, why they did Z. And um, it turns out that a lot of us lie, especially when questions of potential infidelity arise. Um, but a lot of us also either misremember crucial details or we're not being super concrete about the reasons why something happened or we did something, which makes the data as it's reported in evolutionary psychology, it, it gives it a replication issue. And it also means that we have to look at it with a more skeptical lens and pick out patterns when we can. Now, whether the findings can be, all of the findings can be replicated in populations with more diversity and levels of attractiveness, for example, is yet to be seen, right? These haven't been run at scale. Um, but if you, if you look across cultures, right, and this is something that the um, evolutionary biologist and evolutionary psychologist Robert S. Trivers did when he looked at various um, tribes over all over the planet. There are certain characteristics and certain mating behaviors that seem to stay the same. Good looks are important for short-term mating and other factors are less important, for example. When we get to long-term mating, there's a certain long-standing idea in evolutionary psychology that goes something like, in long-term mating, women prioritize status and resources, and that men like physical attractiveness, and that, that that is still what men go after. 
I think that this is in some ways broken down, and I think it breaks down when you actually just really think about it introspectively. But I think what's obvious is in in terms of females and female evolutionary psychology, what women are looking for in both and this is this exists in the literature there's there's a book called the moral animal by robert wright that talks about this jordan peterson has talked about this but it's not the actual resources it's the characteristics that will drive men to be able to accrue new resources so a better question to ask is who would this guy be or become if you stripped all of his resources from him today would he be able to reacquire a lot of it in a year um, that is the the big driver that I see there. Now, you would also consider existing wealth status and existing resource status and existing influence status as a marker for that ability, potentially, in you know, if there was an absence of other signals. Um, now, physical attractiveness for men is too broad of a category to sort of put things in. Um, I think that even though there are certain stereotypical ideas about what female physical attractiveness is, there's a range of things that men view as physical attractiveness. A lot of evolutionary psychologists will tell you that basically men are seeing things subconsciously through a filter of potential feminine fertility. And I'm sure there's a bunch of people who have heard this before. There are some people who probably have not heard this explanation before. And when you think about the fact that maybe some men haven't heard this before, it's interesting to wonder about whether or not women go out of their way to appear more more fertile. I mean, it does sort of seem like makeup has a certain fruity kind of um, concept around it. It seems like everything is geared towards appearing more viral. Um on the point more virile on the point you know on the part of women and i think that that is probably more at the core of what we're looking at when we're trying to understand the gazing male mind and for people who are looking at this sort of thinking well i don't have that much resources i don't have that much status or i'm not that attractive i have good news there's diminishing marginal returns for greater greater, greater and greater status on the parts of men or status ability in, on the parts of men. And there's uh, lowering marginal returns for attractiveness for females, seemingly, from what we can tell. And this, this all has to be taken with a grain of salt because a lot of these things that we're talking about right now are things that have been observed in certain reference frames. They're anecdotal, but the truth of the matter is that after a certain level of either of those characteristics, you're not perceived as that much more attractive to a potential long-term mate. So if you are a seven as a girl, you are very close in desirability to, to a 10. But if you are maybe a two, you know, you are very far from a 10. And I think that that's actually kind of encouraging because I think that human health and lifestyle practices can raise both, you know, someone's physical attractiveness, their status, there's a lot of opportunity for human beings to really, really grow and take advantage of the fact that there are diminishing marginal returns. I also want to add an addendum here, so I just don't want to get skewered over this. As I said, evolutionary psychology is not a hard science. A lot of what I might say 
could prove to be untrue in the future. And what I want to point out here is the other side to bring in here is cultural and environmental influences. And what that would just mean is, does is this stuff that holds across cultures? Is this something that we can go witness an aboriginal tribe? Do they really, really do this? And does it have some kind of corollary here in America? Um, it's actually really, really encouraging that recently scientific research has grown across cultures and is becoming more common as the world kind of grows smaller. It's an encouraging trend. It's as the world is easier to access, we're able to do more scientific research in, in places that are less scientifically accessible width and breadth of all of the experiments that have been done on stuff like this. But let's just say that it suffices to say that um, there are experiments in psychology that lend themselves to understanding the differences in the dynamics in male and female mating. And um, there, there was one very, very um, controversial study that was published. And it was, I think, I think it was in 2017. You know, it might have been 2007. I forget. I think this this study might have existed when I was in college. But um, it's a classic kind of social psychological experiment where you put the idea of there being sex differences and consenting to sex with strangers to a real-life test. You basically have experimental confederates approach college students across various campuses and say, you know, I've been noticing you around campus. I find you to be very attractive. Would you go to bed with me tonight? And around, I think it was 75% of men agreed to have sex with a complete stranger, whereas no women, 0%, agreed to have sex with a complete stranger. In terms of effect size, that is a very, very large sex difference. That is 75% of men will agree to random, just completely anonymous sex with any woman who, or some attractive woman maybe, who is just kind of lingering around campus. And that was replicated, I know, about 20 years later um, with 59% or 60% of single men and 0% of single women agreeing to the stranger's proposition. They also, in the second study, asked participants who were already in relationships, finding 18% of men and 4% of women currently in a relationship responded positively to the request. So again, that is self-report, some of that stuff, but part of it is a very, very distinct dichotomy. And it's interesting, when you, when you place this dichotomy into other animals and you look just purely at how they'll choose to do mating behavior— there's a bird, uh, I forget which one that they did an experiment on, but basically you could get this bird to gradually have sex with um, a, I guess like a mate that was moving less and less, and then some of, or a lot of the birds had sex with just a cardboard cutout of a female bird. Now, if that is something that is deep in the evolutionary psychology program, it's not necessarily the the thing that we really think it is a lot of the time, which is, you know, lust and sin, it's all of that. I mean, it doesn't mean that humans, by the way, can't improve. It does not mean that we have to walk around being the subject of our private parts. It simply means that observing that nature in humans can be powerful and unwinding it, controlling it and understanding it. And this is where we get to the subject of parental investment. And this is, the, let's just say that this has been part of a three or four pronged effort to give you a brief overview of evolutionary psychology. Parental investment is basically the parental expenditure that benefits offspring. 
and the investments may be performed by, you know, both male and female. You know, we have that hopefully. The dynamics that play out between men and women in parental investment start on the day of conception. And if we ask ourselves the question of what is the the minimum investment that a male needs to bring a child onto the earth, the answer is just one night of sex. And what is the minimum investment that a woman needs to make to bring a child to the earth? Well, it's nine months of pregnancy. And it's very probable that, it's not probable, it is the fact that in the environment humans evolved in, the mother-child unit was very specifically vulnerable. And a lot of what we focus on in the realm of, you know, fertility and childbearing years and all of that in the modern world when we look at it through a scientific lens is based on that dynamic, the vulnerability of the mother-child unit in the ancestral environment. I just want to voice one of my personal opinions here. And uh, this is, you know, it's probably a lot. I'm sure I'm not the, the first person who's seen this, but, you know, the vulnerable mother-child unit in deep, deep time over thousands of generations would be something that would explain the female positive reaction to negative male behaviors today. If we're looking at the fact that there is a specific nine-month period in which females are extremely vulnerable, we have to recognize that it would have been adaptive at a certain point in history to be able to look past someone's character flaws and simply see them as a, you know, a protector or a resource bearer. And we have to be able to kind of look at that thing through the lens of what the ignorance of certain characteristics once meant for people. And I think when we see things that way, when we really look at it through that lens, we can start noticing subtle things about the way we think. I'm not a woman, but um, I think maybe there are some in my audience who would say, I don't know why there is this thing that I do or this thing that I'm attracted to. It is something that is perhaps pre-completely pre-programmed into your conscious, it is something that you were actually selected for by. So let's think about that for a second. The dynamics of parental investment would determine strongly which characteristics passed into the next generation. Okay, so if you have a childbearing characteristic that allows the child to be born, especially in the ancestral environment where it's almost impossible to give a successful birth anyways, you can imagine that that characteristic is going to be amplified into the next generation at, at a very high level. Now, that is a sort of bottleneck. It's a sort of filter. And what that means is a lot of the, the software that you are running on, the software that is making up your day-to-day decision-making, is originating from a time and a place that is so existentially distant from the things you face today that it ends up throwing a lot of us off it ends up putting us on the wrong path i mean we can look at this through the lens of you know food too or um if we think about um what it was that our ancestors had to do to continue to maintain diets that were powerful enough for them to have energy i mean if if you came across a fig or a fruit tree in you know, the times in which you couldn't 
possibly carry enough of it to have it later. You would probably try to eat as much as you possibly could, maybe gather some from your friends. I've also heard the idea that, you know, if you couldn't store meat that was killed in the re- as the re- result of some successful hunt, and you couldn't store it, you wouldn't be able to eat it then. So maybe the best way to store that meat is by sharing it. There's all kinds of explanations that are cynical, but that we have to look at in understanding traits like human generosity and even uh, human gluttony, right? So it's probable that all of these things that we treat as vices now, like sexual readiness or um, extreme appetite or thievery, any of these things, they were once adaptive in the environment we existed in. And once we accept that and we see that, we can see the ways that we're behaving that are not correct. I shouldn't say correct. I should say no longer adaptive. So we've been looking at the past. Let's talk about the present a little bit. Let's think about the ways in which the bottleneck of sex selection has been modified today. I think it's actually completely staggering um, in a lot of ways. I, I, I want everyone to kind of go back in their minds and sort of picture themselves in even the ancient world, but even further back. and Think about the conditions in which human sex selection happened in the past. I think the first thing to recognize is that there was a very small potential pool of partners for any given human being over a lifetime. You could take a guesstimate at that. Uh, I would guess, you know, the idea that you would have 10 to 30 sounds like 30 sounds like a high number for very ancient humans. Maybe that number gets into 50 to 100 when you start getting cities and civilizations and stuff like that and, you know, commerce and trade routes and all of the things that we think of as making up the, you know, the more civilized world. What is it today, though? It's a factor higher. We have these dating apps where we're meeting zillions of people all the time or that we can meet zillions of people. You can find yourself in a conversation with someone who is as geographically far from you as they are culturally far from you. You are not any more limited to the people that are in a geographical distance of you. Travel is way easier. We've got a lot of options here. What is that really doing? Is that making the dynamics really wholly different? You know, for a long time, that's sort of what I thought because I looked at the thing from the outside. But when you look at who people are actually ending up in relationships with and marrying now, it's not as divergent as you would expect it to be. People are more, I mean, when you talk to people, you can a lot of the time discern that um, they had some of the traditional markers of the things that would make people likely to end up in long-term relationships. They were working at the same job right? They knew they both had a common mutual friend. So what I would suggest is that dating apps, um, social media, all of this stuff is very powerful for short-term mating. It's probably not as potent for long-term mating. I don't think it's coloring the long-term mating pool in the same ways. I, I think there's a number of reasons for it too. I don't think it's just down to certain facts around what dating on social media or what dating on the internet in general is like, I think one of the things that might be at play is the psychological technology, let's say, the psychological technology that is developed by both sexes to determine false representation. So if you can imagine um, kind of, you know, what someone looks like in a picture on social media, 
a lot of the times people pick the most beautiful picture that they can find or they edit it and um, they you might show up to the date and they look nothing like that. Conversely, um, they might misrepresent themselves in other ways. They might lie about their job. They might lie about how much money they make. All of these things that might play very strongly into female or male sexual selection. I think that on a very unconscious level, everyone's aware of these things when they use the dating apps. And it's what it's doing is it's making it harder for long-term connections to be established. It doesn't make it impossible for long-term connections to be established. But the fundamental skepticism is just higher. And what you would expect is that as one sex gets better at misrepresenting themselves, the other sex gets better and better at detecting false representation. And as both genders get better at filtering through false representation, what they actually end up with a lot of the time is getting closer and closer to a partner that more fulfills their vision of what they want. So it's a powerful thing for both for all people to be doing. At the same time, what is it exactly like to be a female influencer on Instagram and have 5 million followers and have 3,000 messages in your inbox? I mean, that is a unique situation for people to be in, and it's probably destabilizing. I don't think humans are really were ready for that, but I think in the future, we're going to have to adapt to that. And the adaptations to that are going to mean that there's going to be a certain cross-section of people who are going to have to develop very, very sophisticated skepticism technologies. And there's a class of people who are just going to stay away from this, and they're going to prefer to date in person. And I think the way to square this up and get towards the end here in this brief episode, brief episode about evolutionary psychology, you're just getting the the basics here. But let's talk about the criticisms. And the criticisms are here and they are fair. And I would say there's three main criticisms in evolutionary psychology, two which I think are valid and one I just don't think it's a criticism. It's just uh, a frustration. But I think it would be One is that evolutionary psychologists look at an effect and work backward to an explanation. Now, I think that in the broader criticism of sciences, you can actually see a lot of the times this is what we're doing when we're trying to extract the causal mechanisms around any given interaction. Um, We are looking at the effect. That's correct. And we're basically postulating why it might happen. And over a long period of time, we start getting closer and closer to what the truth is. Okay, so it could be the case that um, looking at the effect of something gives us only a very remedial lens into what is actually causing it. But in the history of science, we can see time and time again that what just happens is we tool up our explanations better and we fit it better into our predictive power and eventually we get closer and closer to something that does outline the causal mechanics. Um, A lot of stuff in evolutionary psychology, to be fair, when evolutionary psychologists are kind of opining, you know, I saw David Buss is a great evolutionary psychologist and when they opine, what they they can do, do so with quite a bit of levity and with some courage because once you've decided that evolutionary psychology is the lens you are going to look at human behavior through, everything becomes a signal of that. And every human behavior you encounter would have to be, for example, um, you know, in some way adaptive is one thing. 
you would expect that the genes that are still in the gene pool had some function at some point in time, which brings you into some quagmires. There's a concept called drift that's for another episode that kind of makes some issues here. But I would say generally looking at behaviors and then trying to get to the core of what's causing them is about the best we're going to do until there's a more vivid picture of a physicalist theory of mind, you know, and when I say the physicalist theory of mind, I mean, you know, we talked about physics before and we said that physics was a very hard science. Well, physics doesn't have a, a like a very accurate explanation for what the human brain does. It doesn't have a cause and effect that directly connects input to output. And until that exists, I think we are well off to use something like evolutionary psychology as a tool to understand who we were, who we are, and who we might become. Now, the second criticism is, this is a better one. It doesn't recognize social and cultural influences. That would be a criticism of evolutionary psychology. And to be fair, this is the thing that I think makes evolutionary psychology the weakest. However, what we've seen in recent years is that if we measure an effect in one civilization, we can very easily measure it in a different one. And what we found is that there are some things that don't correspond in civilizations. You can read up about it, but in aboriginal civilizations, there are certain characteristics that are found attractive there that we also find attractive here. Certain um, aspects of facial symmetry is one of them. Um, There are differences, though. There are differences across cultures, which means to me maybe one of two things. I think it's certainly possible that the cultural effect of sex awareness and sex discussions affect people to the point where they are disconnected from any sort of biological or psychological or natural association to what um, the ancestral version of themselves would be attracted to or would be unattracted to. Um, you know, one of the one of the ones that I think is really powerful is head binding. I think I think it was the Mongolians who did this, um, but it, it was only the noble the noble Mongolian men would have their head bound. I think at some point, or it was some other civilization. I'm forgetting it now. But these skulls would become elongated, and uh, Huns. Sorry, they were Huns. So if you were a Hunnic noble woman, maybe you thought that was hot even though there's no clear adaptation. That was just a signal of status. So you can easily imagine situations in which cultures have certain characteristics that provoke that. But, but, the fact that there are certain characteristics that hold across cultures suggests that at least at the baseline, there are certain things that are objectively just part of the human conscious experience of sexuality. And the third criticism, and I would insist this is not an actual criticism of evolutionary psychology, is that it absolves people from responsibility for their behavior. So let's just unpack that and really, really talk about that and think about that. First of all, no one in evolutionary psychology would say that Mother Nature has been fair to humans. No one would say that the Darwinian rule of things is just. That, that, is, that would just be a very bizarre way of viewing human morality. Um, so let's start with that. Two, um, when we look at facts, when we look at what's true about the world, 
We can't stop necessarily at a place just because we don't like the implications of it. We can't just decide that a science is not worth doing because it provokes us into understanding ourselves better and forgiving ourselves better. I mean, that's really what you're talking about there. Now, I don't personally think evolutionary psychology does this. I think that evolutionary psychology, if anything, it points us to the ways in which we can improve, in, in which we can actually change and modify our behaviors. And I'll give you an example. You know, for some amount of male-female relationships, a male who is abusive, that, that pattern of abuse will actually have an adaptive quality in his life. It will actually allow him to retain female attention. So it's, it, that is something that is deep in our story as humans. I, I talked about that earlier on in the podcast where um, stuff around stalking and uh, the preventing perhaps of a woman from taking other mates, that's something that's been adaptive in the deep biological past. And once we identify that that, that was adaptive in the past, but it's inappropriate now, it becomes way easier to sequester the behavior and to see that you are civilized by not engaging in it, and that if you do engage in it, you're actually just capitulating to the worst of your instincts, literally. So this becomes a way better way of viewing the malfunctions in character that humans have today. Well, I hope you guys liked my podcast on evolutionary psychology, Fuck, Mary Kill, and... Uh, I want everyone to go out, try to pursue healthy relationships, try to understand what you're in this game for, try to find love if you want to find love, stay away from it if you don't want to stay away from it, but at the very least, try to understand the reasons that you might want to do so, and have a happy and healthy day.